Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. You may have met me before. I'm Tori Ryder. Joan is a little under the weather, so she's taking a little time to rest and mend. We expect she will be back, we hope, tomorrow. We all hope that. Um, and in the meantime, I guess you're stuck with me. If uh, you remember when Joan took vacation a couple months ago, I was here. We met then. If you want to know a little more about me, I won't uh, take your time with it now, but you can certainly find me online T-U-R-I, writer, and yes, I am the same person you used to hear on those top 40 stations, and yes, I did write that tell-all radio book, so that's all I'll say about me right now, because there is so, so, so much to talk about. Queen Bee is at the controls, and the phone numbers are the same, even if Joan has, you know, got her head to the pillow. You can still find us at 773-763-9278. That's 773-763-9278. Or you can text us, same number. Did you see the Oz-Fetterman debate last night? Did you hear some excerpts of it? How did that feel to you? I can tell you that I watched little bits of it, and then I just wanted to hide. I felt, I've never, never, and maybe you've never, never felt like better this hadn't happened. That guy ought to get, Fetterman here, ought to get a prize for steel mail parts for even daring to do this so soon after his stroke, but he didn't mess around. He confronted the issue. There were definite processing and verbal effects. And yet, speaking as a moderate Democrat, I think he made more sense after a stroke, verbally compromised, than slick Mehmet Oz. I really do, because, you know, Oz has years of performing, and he has not had a stroke. And still, his ideas were about as appealing to me as wallpaper paste. In fact, they're worse because wallpaper paste doesn't scare me, and Oz does. And if you have somebody in your life who has a disability and has perhaps difficulty speaking, you know how easy it is for that person to be written off and not listened to, even if they're superbly confident and competent and able in their mental capacity, in their in their mental processing. How you speak is not who you are. And I say this as somebody who speaks for a living and also writes. But how you speak is not who you are. I'll tell you a little story about my own early radio life. I really was not a great DJ. Was not. I was, eh, you know. And I applied to work at the biggest top 40 radio station, one of the biggest in the world, really, here in Chicago, WLS. And I got the job which was astonishing in and of itself. And then a few weeks after I had the job, I watched, watched, see, see, speak for a living, haha. I watched as a giant, do you know, have you moved a lot? Do you know what a dish pack looks like? It's a big, tall cardboard box. They're hauling this big, tall cardboard box out of my boss's office, and it's filled with, this is how long ago it was, cassette tapes. 
And I said, what, 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 are you replacing me already? He said, no, no, those are the people who didn't get your job. And I said, do you mind, do you mind if I just ask you a question? I'm not the best top 40 talker you've ever heard. In fact, far from it. Why did you hire me for this job? And he said something that I think applies perfectly to the Oz Fetterman debate. I'd rather have someone who has something to say than someone who's really great at saying a whole lot of nothing. Fetterman actually had important things to say. He said, and he means, that he will support women's bodily autonomy. He said, and he means, that we need to support people who are struggling economically. He said, and he means, that he wants reasonable environmental policies. And not a ban on some processes that support the people of his state. And he also said very, very clearly that he understands that he's having difficulty communicating those things verbally. Here's the cut. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. There you go. He said it. He said it clearly. Absolutely clearly. How did it sit with you? Did you see a piece of the debate last night? Did you hear some of it? And what are your thoughts after the fact? 733-763-9278. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder, in for Joan. And um, I'm trying to read your, I'm looking, am I seeing the right page here with texts? Is this where things show up? <laughs> I'm learning. Um, you know what? I will, I, will get, I will figure out where to look to, to see your messages, which, by the way, should come in on the same number, 773-763-9278. And... While I'm on the subject of communicating clearly, let me go through the list of people in my life. And I'd love to hear about the people in your life who communicate differently. I have a friend who is deaf. I asked her once, does she prefer hearing impaired? And she said, no, deaf, hearing impaired makes me feel like I'm broken. Like, I hadn't thought about that. We spend a lot of time trying to dance around politely what's actually going on with people's health. And here's Fetterman going, I had a stroke. I can't speak as clearly as I used to. Let's not let's not pretend it's not happening. Um, let's go to the Gold Coast. I'm, again, learning the which button does that. <laughs> Push it on the screen. Can you do that? Hi, welcome. You're on the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Turi Ryder. Yes, I wanted to make a couple of points. And one, let me preface this by saying that as a society, we we place far too much emphasis on these things that we call these televised debates. This began with Kennedy and Nixon. And since then, you know, we have been transfixed by the notion that if we've got two candidates, that somewhere along the line, if they're running for major office, they've got to uh, have this debate. As if you could encapsulate 
their policies or how they're going to run uh, the particular office and conduct themselves in, in terms of a debate or two or whatnot. I mean, it, it's a little bit ridiculous, but uh, again, uh, this is where we are. Having said that, um, this idea that that substance should matter it doesn't seem to to fly very well with regard to you know to talking about debates because debates are about pretty much uh, what's what's going to come the next day how what can be extracted from that debate to make a good soundbite so it could appear either on conservative or liberal outlets and who got who had the good gotcha question oh yes you know um, yes. And, you know, you know we, we all remember, you know, Lloyd Benson and, and Dan Quayle. Well, you know. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about Ross Perot? He was a great one. Why am I here? Exactly. <laughs> Why am I here? I mean, you have to admit now, honestly, it is kind of fun when they just clearly can't think on the fly. But again, I'm having to reevaluate. Are you having to reevaluate just how much stock we put in these things based on yesterday's oh, debate? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't place much stock in them to begin with. I mean, you know, the format of a debate. Well, you're better than I am because I, I have to say you you were more um, savvy about this going in. I think I think that like many of us, I I'm guilty of what you've just described, and and I'm looking for that moment where the guy that or the woman that I don't like trips over their own thoughts. I, I kind of seize upon it like a, a a greedy person in a horror film with with fangs and blood dripping. Ha ah, ha! They've screwed up now, but but you're right. It shouldn't matter as much. You're right. What's your second point you wanted to make? Well, and it depends on the format, because you know, if, if, if a, a particular entity is hosting it, they're going to uh, use their own rules. Other times, the two campaigns will negotiate how a debate is going to be had because they want to exploit the strengths or weaknesses of one candidate or another. But that, that has nothing to do with public policy. I mean, this idea that, okay, I'm going to be sitting in the governor's office or I'm going to be sitting in a senator's office or in the White House, and I, it, that a public policy decision is going to have to be made. You've got 30 seconds, and then someone will have a 15-second response. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not how we make public policy. You're America. right, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you for your call. Let's go on to, do we have a name associated with this person right here? What, who am I speaking to? I'll just ask. I can ask. Oh, it's Bob. Hey, Bob. Um, welcome. You're on WCPT, Joan Esposito's show. Hi. Hello, Terry. Um, I, my only comment or observation is, yes, Mr. Fetterman is disabled in one way or the other. Well, so was FDR. Yes. For, the first, for his first term. We had to hide the wheelchair. Yes, but I think it's a little different. I, I do think it's a little different because people extrapolate how you speak and, and interpret from that how you think. So I, I, would, I would posit to you that people are less likely to say in this day and age that someone is not able to be a good functioning public official if that person is uh, not able to run or walk. And they're more likely to say that if what they're hearing doesn't sound like a person whose thought process is uh, spot on. And, and it's not true, but I think that's that's what they say. Uh, let's um, take a moment and then more of your calls. Did you hear any of the Fetterman-Oz debate? And how much stock should we put in um, w- the way that someone is able to answer a question, especially when that person has the guts to stand up and say, yes, I had a stroke, but I'm still thinking fine. 
So we're using this word progressive and progressive Christianity. There's a lot of ways we might define that term. And some of the ways that spring to my mind is sometimes people mean a more traditional style of articulation of the faith, but with a very progressive political actuality along with it. Others want to redefine some of the basic tenets of the faith, like the divinity of Christ or the Trinity. Things Not Seen with David Dalt, Sunday mornings at 6 on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan's show. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan. Joan's a little under the weather, but she'll she'll be back soon. Uh, we're talking about the Fetterman-Oz debate last night and how much stock we put in um, the the ability of someone to turn a good phrase or even a quick response and how we judge people that way. And do you think it speaks well, you should pardon the use of that phrase, of Fetterman, that he was willing to do this debate at all? Uh, Let's go to Ike. Hey, Ike, welcome. You're on WCPT. Yeah, hey, I think uh, Fetterman's got more integrity in his little toe than Dr. Ooze has got in his whole body. Uh, Dr. Ooze is a carnival barker. These guys that uh, the GOP are running in these races are are empty suits, empty-headed, or cult members, and they're nothing more than placeholders that are going to take their marching orders, and they're going to do everything they can to overthrow this democracy. They haven't quit. They're not going to quit, and that's who they are. And if you're not smart enough, I'll tell you right now, I don't care who runs for what, just like with Joe Biden. Let me tell you something. I don't care if they run a ham sandwich. I'm never voting for a Republican. These people are dangerous. They're dangerous. It is not a joke. Our democracy is on the line. And Dr. Ooze has been a liar throughout his whole career. Okay, let me let me pause you just for let me pause you here for a second, Ike, because I'm mostly with you, but I think you make one tiny error, which is to say that he's an empty suit. This is a smart guy. And I, I have to say that one of the things that would be the the least wise that we could do is to misjudge these people and assume that because they are wrong or evil or dangerous that they're stupid. They are not stupid. And the minute that we we dismiss them that way, we make ourselves vulnerable. I thank you for your call. It's good to hear from you. Let's go to, I'm trying to, yeah, let's go to Jim in Chicago. Hey, Jim, welcome. You are on WCPT, Joan Esposito's show. Hi, I'm fine. I was one of the cackles of my heart in Canada, Trudeau banned all assault weapons. Uh, in Canada, apparently they care for more of the citizens we do here. They've had uh, temperance of health care since the 70s. I don't know what our problem is here in America. We can't ban assault weapon. We yeah, have a young I'm trying to, Jim, let me ask you, because I must have missed this. Did the did the candidates speak to that issue last night? Because I don't don't remember that one coming up. Although they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't bring it up. They wouldn't bring that up. They wouldn't bring that up. Well, to be fair, and hold up, hold up. As I mean, you're a Chicagoan, I'm a Chicagoan, but I grew up in Kansas, and Pennsylvania, I know, also has, I guess, what's politely referred to now as a gun culture. Um, but, but, oh, wait, they did sort of bring it up. They talked about the Toomey vote 
on the on the bill that partially um, that required background checks. So if that's what you're speaking to, it did come up. And Oz kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, it could have been better. And I wasn't there. And I he was pretty slick on that one because Toomey fought the tide and and was in favor of some restrictions, mental health restrictions, background checks, um, which the the far right, which is just about everybody in the Republican Party now, went along with. So to to your point, um, we're never going to be Canada, but we can do a better job. And Oz just kind of, gee, he slithered his way around that one. Thanks for calling WCPT. Let's go to Paul in, oh my goodness, Seattle. Welcome to John Esposito Show, Paul. Hey, Terrence. Hey. All in Seattle. I haven't talked to you in about 15 years when you, you were... You were subbing for some people on Cairo here in Seattle. I actually had a regular gig on Cairo. So, yes, all of the above. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, I do remember. Um, barely, but it's a long time ago. It was. Uh, yes, dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah, we're both dinosaurs. Uh, well, I think that Dr. First of all, the question that Dr. or uh, John Fetterman's ability to debate if you're going to say that Herschel Walker can get on the stage and, and make some coherent sense is, is, is the whole thing is just laughable. I mean, there's, and the fact that someone has a, a physical temporary physical disability uh, in terms of his speak, it, it, it's just nonsense to even uh, talk about that. Uh, but and considering that Dr. Oz is supposedly a doctor and has uh, made fun of and, uh, of John Fetterman's condition is disgusting. But then Dr. Oz says two things that I just thought were just absolutely hilarious and shows exactly who he is, which is number one, he said, I, as a doctor, would never want to get in the way of the, what is the state's right to regulate or, or tell me what to do. Oh, we've got that quote. Paul, let, let's play that now. We, we've got that exact quote and I'm gonna, I'm gonna thank you for calling on that, on that note. Here, here it is. Ready? The, the one about women's medical decisions. We, well, we'll, I pulled a fast one there on Queen Bee. She was ready with a different one. So we'll just give her a moment here. Um, Fetterman did have, um, a couple of news here. You, know, you may be interested to think about this. Fetterman had a couple of like slick comeback lines sort of prepared. And I think that the fact that he had those prepared just goes to show us what's wrong with these debates, because it was clear when he was using one of those lines he'd sort of trained on. And that was unfortunate, but it did some good anyway, because it let you know when he was really speaking from the heart and when he was speaking more from it may be what he believes, but his campaign team put the, put the words together. This is Dr. Oz talking about women's medical decisions and exactly why he is, in my opinion, a consummate hypocrite. There should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their abortion decisions. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. 
Yeah, you know what? When I go in for my annual mammogram and gynecological workup, I always invite some state legislators to come. And don't you? Don't you want to have like you know? You could pick one. It doesn't have to be uh, of a particular party. Just any old state legislator would be fine while you're there in the stirrups and the little paper dress and the, uh, perfect, perfect. Thank you. That's exact. I would like to invite. I mean, if you don't know any doctors, like maybe we should start uh, state. Le- there are some state legislators who are doctors, I think. But I, I just love the idea that because it's a little crowded in there anyway in the exam room now because you have to have a third person to make sure your doctor's not molesting you. And uh, that will make a nice even four. And if you have a disability and uh, you need to have, say, an interpreter, that'll be five. That that's practically a, a restaurant bill where the tip is automatic. That that's a party there, and and frankly, there's no better place to have a party than your doctor's exam room. No, what? No. <laughs> uh, if you want to know what happens when somebody actually says what he, he's been thinking, there you go, Mehmet Oz. You you need to have. What did he say again? The patient, the doctor, and your state legislature in the exam room. And I would just like to say, since right now, um, for the most part, women are the only ones making these decisions, I would like to invite men not to be left out of this party situation. Next time you have your colorectal checkup, pick your favorite state legislator and tell him or her, you should pardon the expression, hey, Come on down. WCPT, Joan Esposito Show. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Joan's a little under the weather today. She'll be back soon, so we're keeping the uh, microphone warm for her. And I was so excited. You're going to be hearing about this book all over the place. If you haven't already started reading the excerpts, uh, you will not be able to escape them because the work that's been done on this book, Ted Kennedy, A Life, is really, I would have to say, new territory. Some of the things that you've been hearing about for years and some things that you never thought, never imagined that you would get a chance to peek behind the curtain and read about for yourself, you're going to find them in this book. And John Farrell, the author of Ted Kennedy, A Life, joins us now on WCPT. He is a former reporter for the Boston Globe. He is an author. He's written numerous biographies. And uh, are you happy with the response that this one is getting, John? Welcome to WCPT. Thanks. I have a, a great warm spot in my heart because I spent a lot of time there in Chicago. Oh, I'm glad. Did you write for any of our local papers, almost none of which still exist? I was doing the research for Clarence Darrow. I uh-huh. wrote the biography of Clarence Darrow. Oh, that I, explains uh, it. The city very well. Well, it, it's a wonderful I, city. I, 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 went right past, I zoomed right past your question. What was it? How, are, you, are you pleased, surprised? How do you feel about the response you're getting to the book so far? I feel really good because, uh, you know, you always every family has a problem child, and this book was sort of a problem child because in the middle of the research, uh, COVID hit. 
and all the archives and libraries across the country um, uh, shut down. So I had to do some uh, uh, fancy tap dancing in order to um, get the material. Uh, fortunately, some of them began to, to reopen, and uh, I was able to uh, bolster a lot of the information about Ted Kennedy by going to the libraries of uh, his colleagues, for example, the Dirksen Library in Southern Illinois. That That is one that I had not known, the local connection there with the Dirksen Library. Talk a little bit about these diaries that you had access to. Um, you got access to uh, the, the senator's private notes, and, and uh, could you talk a little bit about those, in what form they came to you, and how they had been used, and how you used them? Sure. Um, it's always a, a matter of pluck and luck, and I had been told ahead of time that the um, senator always spoke into a tape recorder and that these diary, vocal, vocal diaries were then transcribed and they were kept up at uh, the JFK Library in Massachusetts, not to be seen by the public um, for um, a period of time that the family, I guess, will eventually decide. But I knew that, I knew, also knew that from having covered him as a reporter for the Boston Globe, that when you would go in to do a story about history with him, uh, he would go, have an aide go to the diaries, Xerox the pages, uh, and send them down so he could refresh his memory and be accurate with you. And what happened is uh, he would also do this for speeches. And what would happen is that very often, rather than pack them up and send them back to um, the Kennedy Library, the aide would just stick them in the folder for the interview or the speech. And so I was able to always look for the speechwriter um, folder or the speeches folder and found um, a, a, a sampling. I wouldn't say that it's anywhere near, you know, the, probably the thousands of pages that are, that are up there, but it included Vietnam. It included uh, Supreme Court appointments. It included uh, the uh, foreign policy adventures like the uh, opening to um, the, the creation of Bangladesh. And uh, so uh, I got I was able to get bits and pieces and, and get them in the book. The, thing, the one that seems to be attracting the most attention now is the Alito uh, nomination for sure. Yeah, Court nomination. Yeah, could let's let's and, talk a little bit about that. What what's showing up um, in different forms all over various uh, reviewing and news organizations is that. Alito said to Kennedy when he was being interviewed for a position of um, to a position on the court that his previous boasts that Roe was a terrible decision. Um, he didn't really mean that he was just immature. And this was the thing that just made and, and I'm paraphrasing here and you'll correct me if I've got it wrong. He he said it made my blood run cold. He was saying it to get the job. And that Kennedy didn't believe him, and so he voted against him for confirmation. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, what, what has happened in America is that ever since Ted Kennedy famously went to the Senate floor and decried Robert Bork's America and led the charge against um, the Bork nomination during the Reagan years, is that the strategy for Supreme Court nominees has been to nod and wink but say nothing. And this is a prime example um, of, of the dangers of that, of allowing that to happen. Here you had um, a, a nominee who was clearly hostile from his previous memos uh, to Roe v. Wade, 
He was asked specifically about Will v. Wade, and his answer was, I will respect precedent. And 50 years later, the heart of Judge Alito's, Justice Alito's um, uh, opinion this summer was an attack on why he couldn't respect precedent in the case of Will v. Wade. Yeah, the quote from Alito, uh, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, was the Alito quote in that statement. And, and so, of course... And it's very Ooh. hard to believe that he didn't believe this all along. Well, oh, maybe he's now matured some more. <laughs> you know, that's how that works. You can mature, you know, at, at five, you'll say one thing. And at 25, you'll say another thing. And then you go to be on the Supreme Court, you say something else. And then I guess we would just mature some more and go right back to where we were when we were a young attorney trying to get appointed by a conservative administration that was anti-choice. And that makes what? Perfect sense? Well, I also, it's also, there's a lot of chutzpah there because um, all the justices on the conservative side of the court right now are complaining that the court is being unfairly maligned as a a political wing of the Republican Party and saying, oh, you know, we're going to lose respect for this uh, wonderful institution. And I think they're forgetting that in in times in American history, like before, during the 1930s, uh, the court was uh, very much against the current of American popular opinion. A strong president, Franklin Roosevelt, moved to pack the court by putting his appointees on the court, mm-hmm. and uh, the court backed down. I mean, Roosevelt caught a lot of grief for it, and it, and it, it cost him support of a lot of uh, Southern senators in particular. But there is that, um, you know, there is that possibility there. And if you're going to, uh, you know, the, the court has no uh, marshals to go out to small towns and, and enforce its rulings. Its rulings are only enforced by the American people having faith in the court. Yeah, it's it's um, very undermining, if that is a verb. Um, yes. I, 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 I don't know if you have kids, but um, one of the watchwords of raising my kids was just don't lie. Just don't lie to me, because the minute you lie, everything else that you ever say to me is suspect. And... You can't get that you you can't get that kind of trust back ever ever ever. So for these justices um, to be looking at the public saying you you you're maligning us unfairly. We're we're not a political bar- body. Almost every one of them now, and thanks to your book in particular, Alito is a confirmed liar. So never mind the politics their integrity is what's gone all they said was all they all he said in in, in defense of to, to play the devil's advocate all he said was i'm a great a believer in um precedent he didn't say i will uphold the precedent of Roe we made in, in every case um uh, he you know because that's the whole kabuki dance is you know the right uh, the conservatives were very upset with uh, judge david Souter because he played the same dance and when he got on the court, he supported abortion rights. And they were all scratching their heads and saying, you know, well, we need to pin these guys down so that we know what we're getting when we appoint them to the Supreme Court. Well, I think but we I can't. Think we can't. can't. The best part. Th- these interviews are, are, as you point out, completely bogus. So all we have is their record. And I think you're giving Alito a bit of a pass here because he had been on the record and then he denied his record. So forget about what he said about precedent. That, that didn't interest me. What interested me was his statement 
in your book, uh, you reported that um, he just said those things when he was interviewing with the Reagan administration to get the job, but he'd matured. I'm paraphrasing there. And it, and I think the reason that, that Kennedy voted against him, as you point out, was, was probably based on that. W- would you agree? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's the worst part about the whole system is that we all know it, it's this game and we allow it to... Uh, uh, continue. I, I'm, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I, I'm not sure I can tell you what the solution is. But um, when it happens and we can catch them like this, I think it is imperative that we um, at least uh, expose it and perhaps embarrass them so that future justices will be more careful. And so that we will know not to bother with the putting too much stock in these interviews. I'm going to ask you to hold up right there, because in a moment, I want to ask you about your revelations um, in, in your book about Chappaquiddick and how you decide um, how much of the ugly you're going to put in and what that feels like when, when you've got somebody's long-term reputation in your hands and, and you put it all in there. So hang on and we'll talk more in a second. This is the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan on WCPT. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. WCPT is exactly where you are. I am Tori Ryder, in for Joan, who is out with a little ailment. We hope it won't keep her long. On the line with me now, John Farrell, author of Ted Kennedy, A Life, which is making news everywhere. You should uh, pick it up at your local bookstore library because there's stuff in here about uh, Miss about the senator that you never uh, have seen before. So I, I said before we we uh, took a little break that I wanted to talk to you about Chappaquiddick and how you covered it and how you decide how much of the um, of the of the to use the expression warts and all how many warts you're going to put in. How does that go in your mind and how do you feel when you put in some of the worst of someone's history? Um, I, that's a, that's a very good question because it is the essence of what I try very hard to do. Uh, my previous book was Richard Nixon. This one is Ted Kennedy. Both are very polarizing, uh, figures. Uh, both of them are viewed by the other side as uh, the devil incarnate and, uh, viewed by, uh, their own, um, fans as, uh, almost a superhero. So it's it, a, a what biography, what good biography does is it, it puts that aside and, and answers the question that a reader has, which is, well, what was this person really like? And why did he do these things that I either really approve of or that I really detest? Um, and so let's see if we can find out about this human being. What is it about the human condition, about his story um, that, that tells us something? And so that's, what, what, that's the goal. The goal is to get into the, the gray area. Um, in Ted Kennedy's case, uh, he, he's best known these days as Mayor Quimby on The Simpsons. And in Richard Nixon's case, he's best known as, as Tricky Dick. But let's get past that and find out who the real human being was. Now, in doing that, you're gonna, I'm going to write endlessly about uh, a whole chapter, for example, about uh, how uh, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch led the Senate fight um, on the Senate floor against uh, Jesse Helms when it came to providing the first federal response to the uh, AIDS epidemic back in the 1980s. And um, to write about the warts, as you said, I, you know, it's impossible not to write about 
uh, Chappaquiddick. We want to give it a full and thorough um, airing so that people can reach their own judgments um, about it. I'm not into uh, making moral judgments about about my subjects um, unless they do something that, that, that really awful in which case well well hold up i, I hold hold up a second here because chappaquiddick is arguably exactly that and for for you if you are are too young to remember this um this is a scene where there was a party and the senator took a young woman in his car for a drive what that was ultimately supposed to be about is not clear and the car went off the road and ended up in uh, chappaquiddick creek is it and uh kennedy escaped and uh, mary joe Peckney uh, did not. And then y- you talk about moral failings. You you write it in such an interesting way um, through the eyes of his family and why they thought, people who loved him, why they thought he did what he did, which was to not report the accident for an extended period of time. Am, am I phrasing that accurately? Oh, absolutely. And and the, the, the again, the little bit that is the little piece of the jigsaw puzzle that is making headlines is that uh, there was a diary kept by one of his advisors, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., which reported what Ted Kennedy said to his family, which was that I, I panicked. Um, I told uh, my uh, aides not to tell anybody. Um, I made this uh, silly attempt to get back to Edgartown from Chappaquiddick. Edgartown is the town in Martha's Vineyard get dressed and dry and go down to a hotel lobby to create an alibi. So for the first time, we actually have what many, many people have charged and suspected over the years, but we have it as an admission from Kennedy himself that he was trying to cover up uh, in, in a panicky mode, trying to create an alibi, which, of course, uh, quickly fell, fell apart. And and it looked so much worse. It looked so much worse. I mean, in those days, if you were a male politician, um, messing around um, was sort of expected and nobody, you know, nobody really took the part of the women. They were just sort of written off as sluts. Um, but so he might have actually um, been more favorably received if he if he'd called for help and said, yeah, we had a couple of drinks and I was just giving her a lift. Ha ha. Nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. But as you pointed out, the fact that he tried to cover it up made, made it so much worse. Do you think it's interesting that this all this has been able to remain private for so long? No. Um, one thing that you learn is that, uh, you know, letters and diaries disappear. They're they're burned. Um, um, I was just reading a great book the other day, uh, Cleopatra by uh, Stacey Schiff, in which some, uh, she reports that uh, one of the uh, prime characters was made a, a point out of destroying um, all their writings because they didn't want uh, people after their death, after their deaths to be um, pawing through them. Well, that, that's a good point. I've always wondered about the people who don't. I, and we had a president who liked to flush things most recently. So I, I suppose that's. <laughs> I mean, there you go. If you're willing to, fl- so Richard Nixon, yeah, shred, right? Delete, shred. Are are you are you surprised at what isn't discarded? Um, am I surprised at what isn't discarded? Um, yes, you you learn that a lot of stuff. It's a, it's a mammoth job when you're talking about somebody like Senator Kennedy with a 40 year career, or somebody like uh, Nixon with a, a Nixon presidency. Um, or someone like uh, Trump or uh, Obama more recently. It's just there's there's so much material that it's beyond um, I think uh, human ability 
to comb through everything, which is why um, reporters are still writing pieces about Richard Nixon um, uh, 50 years after Watergate um, and finding scoops in, in the public record just because, um, okay, nobody's looked at this file yet. And lo and behold, there's something that was stuck in, stuck in a file and forgotten about and, and wasn't properly whitewashed. And we have a little piece in the puzzle. Well, that's a that's a good way of putting it. And when you writing a biography is, is is an arrogant act because you can never capture every thought that a human being has for um, a, a long lifetime. So from the start, you know you're you're making an approximation. And you're trying to do the the best that you can, and you do delight when you find something um, like a diary entry or somebody else's diary entry that that uh, reveals something secret because. Um, yeah, this is something that, that was not probably intended for public consumption. So I'm going to ask you to get out what is my favorite uh, psychological tool, the speculator, um, and speculate a little bit. Um, sure. Uh, Ted Kennedy, what, was he at that time aware that he had... That, did you believe the three glass, three drinks, and do you think that he was in the throes of alcoholism even then. I mean, I think there's sort of a consensus that later on he had a drinking problem. I think, and I may be wrong about this, he even admitted to having a drinking problem. Um, am I right about that? Did he acknowledge that, that alcohol was a problem for him? And yes, yes, yes. And and was it a problem in his mind even then? And do you believe him about the only three drinks? Because that's the oldest excuse in the world, says this person who's had a lot of alcoholism around her in her life. Um, there is there is other testimony which suggests that throughout the afternoon before they got to the party uh, that he had been drinking. So, uh, do I believe that the three drinks at the party uh, were the only was the only alcohol he had all day? Probably not. Might it have been the only alcohol he had at the party? Sure. Uh, we don't. You know, three drinks. What what's a drink? A drink can be really powerful. We know that. The blood test that Mary Jo Titany had that she was above beyond the legal limit. So there was it was a good party. Things were, 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 were but people people were having drinks at that party. It was not um, uh, 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 a Roman orgy, as one of the um, boiler room women said afterwards. But um, to get back to your, to your to your other question, though, is that um, uh, you know he Ted Kennedy was never supposed to be who he became. He was never trained for it. Um, the expectations were huge, and they fell on his shoulders when um, all three of his brothers died violent deaths. And um, he, he, there's a lot of uh, evidence, psychological evidence and, and actions that he uh, performed, which indicate that he was self-sabotaging uh, himself because he didn't think himself uh, worthy of uh, carrying his brother's mantles, even though he felt a compelling duty to do so. Oh, that's an interesting that that is a very interesting analysis, and I don't I don't know if I've ever heard it put that well and and that succinctly. So let me ask you, as long as we're on that topic of of his family and what was expected of him, how much of his behavior, especially his um, inappropriate or even criminal behavior in the case of Chappaquiddick. How, how much of that do you attribute to being the child of such great privilege? Did you find instances where he was, when he was younger, where he did not have to face consequences for his behavior or that was modeled for him? Um, yeah, but he, I mean, he did face it. it, it Chappaquiddick was a criminal act for which he pled guilty and was sentenced to two months in jail. Now it was, 
the sentence was suspended sort of in keeping with uh, what a first-time offender would have gotten in those days, um, according to the journalist that, that scrubbed it at that time. So it was not a, um, a legal um, cover-up. It's what, if, if, if I had done this, that's probably what um, I would have gotten as well. Uh, pleaded guilty to leaving the scene of the accident, and um, unless they had proof that I was speeding or had been drinking, which they didn't, um, they couldn't have gone on and pressed something like a man assaulter charge against me. Um, but uh, uh, yes, all all three of the all four of the boys were spoiled. Uh, they knew their dad was one of the richest and powerful men in the country, and could get them out of the fix. Um, Ted had a series of speeding tickets uh, when he was a law student at the University of Virginia. Um, uh, that he was famously tracked down by a policeman, but trying to run away from the cop when the cop was trying to pull him over. Right. So, um, sure. So there was, there was a, there was always a spoiled feeling among these boys, um, that, uh, the, the laws, the little laws that applied to the little people didn't apply to them. Was, did he ever in his private diaries, did he ever talk about his feelings about being so privileged? Was he, um, aware in a way where he articulated the fact that his life was going to be lived differently than other people's lives because of his great privilege? Yeah, uh, it's more in his memoir than, than, than in the diary fragments that, that, that exist. Um, uh, the memoir is, is somewhat uh, poignant on that, uh, uh, that fact. But the, the, the flip side of that is that, you know, um, great rich families can be cold and cruel. And uh, in his case, he was the ninth child. His mom confessed to Time magazine that, you know, when the ninth one comes along, it's really hard to be uh, taking that read story to him or taking that, um, teaching how to, how to go sledding. Um, and um, he was, uh, they tried to send him away to boarding school at the, in, at the age of uh, seven. So um, he did have this almost Dickensian childhood um, as well. So, there, so it sort of cuts both ways. If you have estranged parents who, who are, are, are in it for ego and, and money and traveling around the world and, um, in, in the father's case, having dalliances of his own, and in the mother's case, reacting to that by absenting herself from the family for, for a long time, then, um, yeah, you're going to, you're going to have uh, an interesting uh, view of the, the male-female uh, relationship as you get older yourself, I think. So with, with that in mind, the, the, the view of the world, and with the minute we have left... Could you describe briefly how, if your view of Ted Kennedy changed from the point where you started writing this to the end in just a few seconds? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I went in thinking that um, he had done this, had this marvelous record as so-called lion of the Senate um, and thought of him as a pretty funny uh, politician. He was very skilled in political gifts. And I came away, the, the single thing that impressed me the most, which uh, how much torment um, his life was uh, not just physical pain from the, the airplane accident that almost killed him and broke his back and put him in the hospital for six months, but also, of course, the pain of you know, losing one brother to an assassination, another brother to war, and then having this third brother killed in an assassination as well. Um, and having all three of your children. Imagine just having all three of your children get cancer before. I cannot. I cannot even begin to imagine it. it, And I appreciate that you will help us not just have to imagine it, but really uh, go through it with you in your book. Thank you, John Farrell. I appreciate you making time to talk about Ted Kennedy, A Life With Us, and much success to you with this book. WCPT Tory writer in for Joan Esposito. 
The Devil's Advocates with Dom and Crute. Don't know if you've caught the spectacle, but it's getting quite interesting around here. Weeknights from 6 to 8 p.m. Worldwide, right. Chicago, Progressive Voices on WCPT 820. That is a sweet deal, Jack. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Yep, as mentioned, Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Where is Joan? A little under the weather, but she will be back. She will. Soon. Sooner rather than later, I think. Lady B at the controls when you call. And this is the number to call. 773-763-WCPT. You can use that number to text. And it is via text that I have a correction to make. When I mentioned uh, in the presidential debates that uh, Ross Perot had had asked that question, why am I here? It was not. Thank you to the person who kindly texted me to say it was Ross Perot's nominee for or selection, I should say, not nominee, his selection for vice president, Admiral John Stockdale, who who uh, uttered that famous phrase, why am I here? Why I am here, you already know. And uh, we're going to ask another gentleman why he is not only um, here on the phone with us, why he is running for the 15th district towards Quincy, Illinois. His name is Paul Lang. He is a candidate for office there, uh, running on the Democratic ticket. And uh, welcome, Mr. Lang, to WCPT. Uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You? I'm I'm well, and I have to say I took great joy, and, and I had a little concern when I watched you on your Illinois newsroom extended interview. Can you guess why? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. Because you're so nice. Uh-oh. <laughs> you're so nice. You're, you are, I mean, I I was like... This is one of the nicest guys ever to seek political office. And then there was a part of me that went, oh, no, you can't be nice and seek political office. Um, You want to sketch out a little bit what your priorities are so people can see what I'm talking about and why I think you're so nice, the things you care about most and why you're running? Uh, Well, the reason I'm running is three basic uh, things uh, to follow. First off, democracy. Like a lot of people, I was concerned about what happened on January 6, 2021. Um, so that's one. That's, like, yes. Go ahead. No, that's that's one good reason to be concerned and to run. And you support things like go ahead. I was going to say the um, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I believe people need to have access to voting, easy access. I. Uh, I have believed all my life that democracy is the best way to go and that people have the right to determine who their leaders are and, you know, what policies govern our society. The second thing that came up after I got in the race was the Roe versus Wade decision. And I ran for state representative back in 94 and 96. And back then, uh, the question I was most asked, concerned abortion and back then i said well if you're thinking about it i think a woman should be the person who decides what happens um and i still feel that way a woman has a right to determine what her what happens with her body her life her future mm-hmm. well you get no argument from me Go ahead. no, no argument here um, 
uh, infrastructure. We're, I mean, I live in Quincy, and I'd like to see the uh, Mississippi River and the Illinois River, for that matter, the lock and dams upgraded, modernized. So that's a big thing for me. And then the third one was Social Security. Ah, there we go. That's the one where I said this gentleman is just too kind to survive the the vicious barracudas of the political world. But you had such kindness in your heart. Talk about Social Security and how you feel about it a little, if you would. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Um, Well, first off, a little background, when I was... um, it was 1961 when I was six years old. My father died. And so with the help of Social Security, my mother was able to raise six children. Uh, recently, the trustees have talked about having um, the major fund uh, be depleted by 2034 in that area. And so, you know, the Republicans are talking about maybe eliminating it. That would be like. Senator Ron Johnson and Rick Scott. Other people talk, other Republicans talk about privatizing it, raising eligibility ages, uh, lowering benefits. My position, and I believe Social Security has made our country stronger since 1930s. Uh, we haven't had a Great Depression since then. Is uh, I'm against raising eligibility ages because I know some people who have worked very hard very hard physical jobs their whole life, and their bodies are about done for. Uh, Let me pause you right there, because that's one of those things where if you sit in an office and earn your living, or like me, you sit behind a microphone, you don't sweat too much, unless you're really making a hash of the interview. You don't sweat much at all. And it's different for me to imagine working till 70 or 75 or for me to imagine a firefighter entering a burning building and carrying somebody not well, my size down four flights of stairs. Um, and I wouldn't want her or him to have to do that until the, he or she was 75 years old. So is there any way that you could see where since people now routinely live to be 90, 95 years old, where we could make a separate area? I mean, I am a moderate Democrat, and I believe in Social Security for the elderly, the the um, those who don't have great means, for children who are orphaned uh, or partially orphaned. But the, the scenario that the Republicans wave around is, well, you got people earning $200,000 a year, and they don't have, you know, the, why should they get all of that? They can just work a little longer and then get it. What do you, what, is there a way that we could please both arguments? Is there some way? I I think there might be. I mean, what I'm looking at is, um, and I've talked to a number of people, is, uh, you know, there's a cap on the earnings as far as the payroll tax. Yes. Which is, I think, like $147,000. Some people say raise it, you know, from that level on. Myself, I kind of agree with the... uh, even though I'm a little lower than the Democratic plan, I think it's called 2100, Social Security 2100. And that is reapply it to incomes at 350 or higher. There you could uh, go ahead and stabilize the fund, which is the main idea. And two, maybe even raise some benefits for in uh, one of the counties I uh, campaign in is Mercer County. It's up just south of Rock Island. 
And uh, I was talking to a woman there, and every month she's got to decide, do I eat or take my medicine at the end of a you know period before she gets her next Social Security check? It's a horrifying. I mean, you're looking at someone who is a fan of single payer. So I, I that that those experiences just break my heart. I'm sure they break yours. Yes, I mean, I mean, you know, in a country like ours, there's no reason somebody should have to do that. I'm not saying they should live extravagantly, but you know, they shouldn't have to decide between medicine and food and heat. So anyway, I'm looking at three hundred fifty thousand or higher. I think that would stabilize the fund. That sounds reasonable. So it's not like you're just waving a banner going, never, never, never. You're saying, let's put some thought into this. People do live longer. They are going to be withdrawing longer. Let's make sure this makes essentially actuarial sense and that we don't punish people who've been, you know, farming hard work all their lives. And now, you know, they they have a right to be able to retire with, with dignity now. Yes. Yes. So I want to ask you in in a moment um, and what it's like to be, and and I think you wouldn't argue with this, uh, a a minority political party in an overwhelmingly uh, in in a party in in a place where the opposite party is in the majority. And I'm sure that you can speak to that. And I was raised like that. I have not been a Chicagoan all my life. So um, I'll ask you that in just a second. Uh, You are listening to WCPT. It is the Joan Esposito Show. We're talking to Paul Lang, candidate for 15th District, Illinois. Out Chicago. Progressives tend to have a broader demographic, and we all have different issues. See, with us in, in the progressive or the liberal parties, they are something that's like a little bit more. They're they're really looking towards human infrastructure and a living wage and women's reproductive rights. With the GOP, they've got like three, so they are able to drill it in because uh-huh. it's all basically in a homogenous party. It is the scared white people party. Catch out Chicago every Sunday, eleven to one on WCPT eight twenty. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You're listening to the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Turi. That's spelled T-U-R-I, rider like those big yellow trucks, in for Joan, who is under the weather. And we're fortunate to have with us Paul Lang running for Congress at the 15th District. That's uh, the Quincy area. And I wanted to ask you, Paul, and again, welcome to WCPT. I wanted to ask you what it feels like um, when you're running a race in a part of the country where your political party is in the distinct minority. And I say this as uh, someone who was raised by a Democrat party parents in um, what my grandmother called the wrong Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, I I was going to say this year is kind of interesting in this uh, regard. The um, governor in the last four years has done business wise anyway, as far as the uh, fiscally, I should say, uh, has done a good job. And so it's a little easier to come back with if, you know, somebody's taunting you um, and say, well, you know, the state of Illinois was in so-and-so state under Bruce Rauner, and now it's in a lot better fiscal state. And so people, um, they, they're not, I don't know that I'm changing anybody's mind, but it's um, it's a little easier. They can't, they, they find it harder to ride you on something. 
but I've known Republicans my whole life, and before Trump, um, you could discuss things with them, but since Trump, it's uh, it's just been a different thing. Well, are you hearing a lot of uh, uh, conspiracy theorism, and are you hearing uh, some of this violent rhetoric? I, I I have a dear friend who somehow went down the the Trump rabbit hole, and the invective and the language is, I, I never heard this from him in my life before. I don't, I don't know where it's quite coming from. What, are you experiencing any of this? Yeah, I've experienced some of that. Um, what I usually do if, if I experience it is let it pass, and then you can, usually after they, about 10 minutes of them sort of kind of yelling. <laughs> then it starts to pass. I mean, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like a bad storm, you know? It's like, um, <laughs> you just wait it out, basically. Seek yeah, shelter, yeah. wait it out, and when the all clear sounds, you can maybe talk a little policy with them. Yes, yes. and and um, But, you know, I have to say a lot of them, and I was just talking with a man in Colchester, Illinois, which is um, just to the west of Macomb, Illinois, if you're familiar with that area, uh, just Sunday, and he was telling me about, you know, that us, that the Democrats are just, you know, killing the country because we're letting all this fentanyl in and this and that. And I told him a story that had happened to me earlier in the week. I was in Lewistown, and I was a little moving a little fast, but getting out of town, I had to go to another meeting, and a police officer stopped me, and Anyway, we got talking. He just gave me a warning, by the way. Oh, that's uh, nice. I'm glad they're still, they have a heart, the police. He, yeah. Uh, yes. And anyway, uh, he, uh, the officer told me what they have a problem with is meth. And that in Lewistown or some other areas, there's just a lot of people engaged in cooking meth and whatnot that they don't have a big fentanyl problem. Well, I was trying to explain this to this man Sunday, not to get all these people, you know, um, um, in trouble, construed or yeah, um, and and he was having no none of it. So you know, you just at a certain point, you just walk away. You know, and we shook hands. So that's nice. I think there are a lot of people who, it, if it's a if it's a drug they don't take, it's all the same drug to them. And I, I'm, I mean, it's it does no good really sometimes to explain. Well, some of this has to be made in a pharmaceutical lab. And some of this you can make with the stuff you've got under your bathroom sink. And they, you, you'd think that since a lot of folks work with chemicals in their in their workplaces, that they would appreciate that there's a difference between what you can mix up in in your own home business and and what has to be made in a lab. But uh, perhaps perhaps that's perhaps that's a byproduct of how are ruining our science programs in our public schools. Yeah. Speaking Fox News. Oh, good Lord. I just I I feel like I'm just going to share this with you. Fox News makes me want to do a Rumpelstiltskin right through the floor. I, I, I can't. I, I see it on in the airport and I have to. It's the thing that's made me most likely to join one of those private airport lounges is seeing Fox News at every gate. And I, I just what I really want. And I don't think I could get this through the airport screening. But, you know, those silly string cans. I would love to go yeah. through the airport and whenever they have Fox News on, I'd love to just squirt it with silly string just just for the temporary abatement of my misery. I, I don't. 
It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I've had people say, oh, you know, my mother was widowed and her new boyfriend is fantastic, except he watches Fox News all day long. And when I welcome them to my home, I have to take a deep breath and just remember, no politics, no politics, no politics. But you, who mentioned in your interview that you got interested in politics by door knocking and that you fell in love with politics by volunteering and door knocking... How does that feel different now when you go out and you knock on somebody's door? Are you more concerned? Are you afraid of what will happen? Or or is it just the same? Um, Generally, it's just the same. I I mean, I've had, well, this was a couple of years ago. I was helping another candidate. I had somebody act like he was going to maul me or something. uh, But otherwise, it is different, though. People don't want to open up and talk very much anymore in this area. They uh, they got their views and they're going to stick with them, even you know if you have other facts that might refute what they think. Uh, back in the '90s, it was easier to go uh, door knocking. It was easier to talk with people. May and I- you could talk about issues, and nobody got upset. Let me say that. Well, may I ask, other than than Fox News, what what do you find are the primary news sources for folks where where you are campaigning? Well, the, the other station is it Max News? Is there some Newsmax? Oh, Lord, help us! Yeah, that's another one. Yeah, that that's another one that makes me want to wear a garlic necklace. I mean, we have local news: um, NBC, CBS. But, you know, our local stations now are like uh, the local CBS station is owned by Sinclair. Oh. They're pretty conservative. It's hard, isn't it? Do people hide? I, I have a girlfriend who lives in Texas, and she says that she actually worries about the fact that she was getting the printed New York Times, which she liked for the crossword. And she's just switched to online because she doesn't want anybody to know what she's reading. Yeah, I think it can be. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, every every place is different. Uh, I don't walking around before I was running. I you know I could walk through the streets and uh, nobody says too much to me. They knew most people that know me know I'm a Democrat. So, uh, but you know when uh, the election cycle, uh, last election cycle came around in 2020. The Trumpers are pretty loud, yes. They're, they are loud. Let me ask you a final question. Um, have you had, in light of the uh, Roe uh, decision from the Supreme Court, have you had any women just quietly approach you and say, I- I'm going to be voting for you, my husband will not, and, and, and that's the reason why? I haven't anybody say that their husband will not, but I've had people, yes, women that approach me and uh, also, I have a shirt that says everyone deserves a choice. And people say they like that shirt. In fact, I had a young woman, I was in a parade Saturday in Macomb, who came up and said, I got to take a selfie with you. So, you know, it is, it's just in this district, I think it will help somewhat, but it won't help like, say, you know, in a district in Chicago area. 
Well, in a district in Chicago, it's pretty much moot. I walked a precinct in a in DuPage County a few years ago, and I was astonished uh-huh. at the women saying, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to vote for, and they named the candidate. In that case, it was Sean Caston. And I thought, this is going to be their first Democratic vote ever. Um, it was clear to me. And I all I can say is, may the powers that be bless you with many of the same uh, voters. Yes, I could use all the help I can get. The other thing I have to say before I go is if I have a chance, it's because of my opponent. Okay. Now, you're very nice, but you've got 20 seconds to say maybe something that's not quite so pleasant about your opponent. Let her rip. Well, this is it. This is just I can't understand this because when infrastructure bills come up, you know, it's usually bipartisan. She uh, voted against the Infrastructure Act and. There's a lot of things that we could use down here, you know, roads-wise, but also the money to uh, do the uh, locks and dams like I was talking about earlier. I just don't understand voting against that for sure. There's other things, too, that she's done, but that one really stands out in my mind. Yeah, that does seem like a little bit of self-sabotage. Well, you know, maybe she plans to just get out there with all her voters and just rebuild the dams with, you know, rocks they find around their property or something. Yes, I guess. There you go. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and and good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and you have a good day. You too. Paul Lang, Democrat, campaigning in Illinois' 15th district down around Quincy. Uh, It's the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder, sitting in for Joan. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Yes, facts do matter. I am Tory Ryder. I am not Joan Esposito. Let's get that fact squared away right away. Lady B at the controls. Joan a little under the weather. She'll be back very soon. And I just want to check in on some of the texts that you have sent to me. Um, speaking of what would happen if uh, the Democrats are Uh, losing some elections that they should be winning. This text came in. Look in the final analysis. President Biden and the Democrats have accomplished more in one year than Donald Trump and the Republicans have in four years when they were in control of the White House and Congress. If you want more progress, more solutions and more opportunity for your family uh, economically and Spiritually, I thought that was interesting. Spiritually, more spiritual opportunities. Vote Democratic in November. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. But, hey, that's why you are participating. Let's talk with someone who is working in the trenches. We've talked obliquely today about the Supreme Court Roe decision. We've talked about campaigning downstate uh, in in an atmosphere where there is great opposition to choice and what it feels like to be a choice candidate. But here is somebody joining us now who works on the front lines of helping women who need access to abortion care to obtain it. Her name is, is it Megan or Megan? I want to make sure I get it right. Jayifo, she's the executive director, Chicago Abortion Fund. Welcome. Am I right with Megan or, or is it with Longy? Uh, Megan. Megan, good. I, you know, I can screw up anybody's name. I could probably screw up Anne if you wrote it on my screen. And it's Jayifo, if I got that right? 
Yep, you've got that right. Well, at least it's a 50%, not quite a passing grade, but it'll have to do. <laughs> so you at the um, you are, your title officially, Executive Director, Chicago Abortion Fund. You're not a clinic. You're not a care provider, if I understand directly. You help women access those services. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we are different from a clinic or from a hospital that provides abortion care. Will you tell me how you do that? I would love to. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, So the Chicago Abortion Fund is part of a national network of abortion funds. We're a member of the National Network of Abortion Funds. We're one of the oldest abortion funds in the country. We've been around since 1985. um, And we support people seeking abortion care in Chicago, in Illinois, and across the Midwest with financial, emotional, and logistical support. So Um, let me hold you up. Let me hold you up for a second. When you say logistical support, do you actually like show up and and hold somebody's hand and give her a ride to a clinic if she needs it? Or or what does that look like, logistical support? Yeah, in many instances, we do do in-person support, um, but the bulk of our work is spent Um, usually via phone and via text message with our callers. We work in such a large geographic area that doing lots of in-person support is, um, is difficult, but, um, we, we accessing abortion care is really hard right now and it's been really hard for a long time. So even before Roe, you know, abortion funds made true access to abortion a reality. So we had legality. We have less legality now. Abortion funds have been working for decades to connect people to the care they need. Okay, no so let, let's let's um, let's talk about how some of that looks here in Illinois. We are a blue state. We are in the process of building more clinic facilities at our borders because we are an island in a sea of states that are actively trying to ban abortion at just about any point in a woman's pregnancy. Um, okay. And. I I've, I actually read I think it was the New York Times there's there's funding now somebody got the idea of uh, putting clinic ships in international waters off the coasts of states where it it may be problematic to seek this kind of care uh, I think most people think when they envision this that these are surgical abortions but am I right in saying that what most people are getting right now is uh, the two stage pill. Um, abortion, or is, is that inaccurate? No, that's accurate. Um, medication abortion outpaces procedural abortion right now, um, but that doesn't mean that medication abortion is kind of a cure-all for what we're facing. Um, so you mentioned, you know, here in Illinois, we are an access state for many states around the Midwest and really nationally at this point. We, we have long been a regional access point. People from Missouri, from Indiana, from Wisconsin have been traveling into Illinois for many years due to the restrictions that they faced in their home states, even with row in place. Um, and so, um, you know, those people, as those states have shut down, Illinois has become more and more um, important. Um, but we do need, at CAF, we, we really believe that people should be able to access the kind of care they want. And there are many reasons why a medication abortion would not be safe um, 
or not the desire of the person having the abortion, right? So, well, I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I would assume later in a pregnancy or if you have a pregnancy that you had hoped to bring to full term and, and have a baby, that that would be more likely to be the case. But are you? what are you envisioning when you say that? Yeah, I can give you some examples of callers um, that I I still do direct service um, every week, and I speak to callers regularly who prefer procedural abortions versus medication abortion. Um, one reason is especially if you're traveling here from another state um, and you have a, a failed medication abortion, that does happen. It doesn't happen frequently, but if you've traveled all the way here from Texas, for instance, um, if you have a procedural abortion here in Illinois, you can be sure that that has, you know, you go home and your abortion, your pregnancy has passed. Um, that's not always the case with a medication abortion. Um, if you are living in a home where it's unsafe for people in your home to know that you are having an abortion, uh, an abortion with pills may not be right for you. If you don't have a home, an abortion with pills might not be right for you. We um, at the Chicago Abortion Fund regularly support people um, who are unhoused um, with hotel stays so that they can um, have a medication abortion, you know, in a safe space. Would that also um, would that also apply if you um, want to be sure that the medication abortion has worked where you and you're nervous about it because it's not safe for you to go home and, and take the second pill? Might you as an organization say, OK, we'll put you in a hotel and you can stay there because yeah. it, it's like two or three days, I believe, from from pill to pill. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Yep. So, so then we will, you can stay here till you're sure that it's worked. Do you, is that an option for yep. people? I yep. see. I see. Yep. Who founded your group and what was the thinking? Like, how old are you? How long have you been around? When did you come to creation? Are you the legacy of the Jane Fund or what? Tell me your, your uh, yes, history. I guess you could say we are. We do follow in the Janes footsteps. Many, um, a, a, quite a few Janes were part of the original group that formed the Chicago Abortion Fund um, back in 1985. Um, just people who who saw a need even back then um, to make abortion access a reality for people who were not able to get it. So um, shortly after. Um, and after Roe uh, became the law of the land, Henry Hyde, who was a, a senator here in Illinois, um, put forth a law called the Hyde Amendment that mandated no federal insurance would cover abortion care. No Medicaid would cover abortion care. Right. And that um, directly impacted um, low-income people, communities of color. Um, and that has been the law of the land since 1974. And so those impacts, you know, um, we're seeing, we're still seeing impacts of those that law today. Um, Illinois does not see the impact of the law anymore. In 2017, um, uh, Republican Governor Bruce Rauner signed House Bill 40, which mandated Medicaid coverage for abortion care here, here in Illinois. And I was a volunteer on our hotline at that time, and I cannot kind of overstate how um, transformative that law has been here in Illinois, connecting um, people who have Medicaid to abortion care. Our calls. The Chicago Abortion Fund was able to support people from so many other states coming into Illinois because we. Knew oh, their their Medicaid would work here. Ah, oh, interesting. Yep. No, Hold their, on, their one. Medica- their Medicaid does not work. Their Medicaid does not work here. But we could reallocate funding we would have used for for Illinois folks to those people. Ah, I'm glad you cleared that up. Hold, hold on yeah, one second, because I, <laughs> I have more questions for you, and we'll get to those in just a moment. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan. This is WCPT, and this is the place where facts matter. 
WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. We're just a little away from Patty Vasquez, who will be joining you at five o'clock. Just a reminder, jo- Joan's sick, but so far she hasn't taken down the entire air staff here at WCPT. So far, so far, that masking thing, that works pretty well around here. We are joined right now by Megan Jayufo. She's the executive director of Chicago's Abortion Fund, the successor to the Janes. You may remember that's a group of women who were, I guess, mostly started out of the University of Chicago, who uh, believed that women should have access to uh, making any decision about whether or not they wanted to get pregnant or carry a pregnancy to term. And so um, they figured everybody knew someone named Jane, and they posted little notes around town, pregnant, worried, call Jane. And that was the Jane Network, which now Tamar Menasha of the Southside um, is considering um, reinvigorating or restoring. Do you have anything to do with that uh, network, Megan? You know, I, I have a, a, a buddy of mine um, was a Jane, and I, I email her regularly, <laughs> Judith Arcana, um, just to commiserate and just for support. It's it's great to kind of um, talk to someone who has been doing this work for a long time. Um, and then we know Tamar, we, we partner with Tamar um, and are happy to see that, you know, the, the Janes, their legacy is being used as, you know, a messaging tool to, to let people know that abortion is still accessible um, and there are still people out here who will support you in getting access to that care, even in this new post-Dobbs reality. Okay, so now that you have brought it up, the post-Dobbs reality, the post-Roe reality, what has changed? A lot of states had trigger laws. A lot of courts have put those laws on hold. What's actually going on that's different, both legally and in terms of people's um, perception and in my imagination, you're getting a lot more um, self-righteous anger directed at you uh, than you might have before. But that could be my imagination. What's the temperature out there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as an abortion fund uh, who is in a receiving state here in Illinois, we have received an incredible outpouring of support. I think the public finally has realized the conditions under which many people in this country, thousands of people in this country, have been existing um, within where it's been this patchwork state-to-state restriction by restriction. You know, the the right has been cobbling away at access to abortion for a very long time, and those implications have been felt by real people for a very long time. And so abortion funds um, are uniquely positioned in this moment to... um, to be resourced. You know, we, we have deep logistical expertise when we talk about the logistical support we provide. You know, it's not just booking a plane ticket for someone or figuring out a travel plan with them um, and then, you know, paying for their abortion. It's also figuring out how they will have childcare in some instances, providing that childcare. It's figuring out what clinic works best for them. Here in Illinois, for Illinois residents, it's figuring out what clinic accepts your insurance. If your insurance denies you coverage, which, you know, you're supposed to be able to use insurance coverage here in Illinois, if you have an Illinois-based plan um, for your abortion and you're denied, the Chicago Abortion Fund can help you try to untangle that if you need to get connected to the Medicaid. Let me me pause you for a second there. I can tell you as the mother of uh, a, a person who's on my policy but of age, 
what kind of privacy does someone have if they share an insurance uh, policy with someone? Let's just say that you would rather your partner didn't know that you had terminated a pregnancy. Is there anything that someone could do to, to keep that information private? Or then would they just have to seek a solution outside their insurance coverage altogether? The latter. They would have to seek um outside coverage or, you know, they would hopefully be connected with the Chicago Abortion Fund and we would pay for their procedure in its totality. Um, So we work with many people who are on their parents' insurance um, or people who are on their partner's insurance and don't want that whoever is the holder to get the statement of benefits that, you know, outlines the care. Um, I think that is something that folks in Illinois are working on to to have a a more um, restricted kind of statement of benefits. Um, delivered to you so that that isn't something that that comes up so that privacy is more protected. But as it stands right now, you would if you if you are, are concerned with privacy, I do not recommend using your insurance. How are you getting the word out to people that your services are available? I mean, I would imagine I was looking at a map on your website. Um, and by the way, if people want to reach out to you through the website, it's Chicago Abortion Fund, all one word dot org. Is that correct? Yes. If people want to look up, you know, what what's going on in your state and how close you are to a place where you can get assistance. Um, And I I would imagine that um, you have to get the word out to some of those places. And I would imagine that you have to be pretty creative sometimes in getting that word out. How are you doing it? That's right. Well, uh, some members of our team really want us to get on TikTok in 2023. So that is something we're going to try to try to do. But um, the majority of people we, we reach through partnerships with um, clinics and hospitals that, that we work with. So we work with over 55 clinics across seven states. That those that was kind of our pre-Dobbs talking point. It has changed quite a bit. We're still in that number of states. Probably more clinics. It just has changed as the map changes. So we didn't used to fund in Kansas, for instance, and now we fund heavily in Kansas because that's where a lot of people who um, are traveling are being forced to go. Um, but yeah, we we have great relationships with, with clinics. So when someone calls a clinic and the clinic asks them questions about how they're going to pay for their appointment, if someone says, "Hey, I'm I'm not sure how I'm going to pay for it or I can't pay for it," then the clinic will go ahead and connect them with the Chicago Abortion Fund. I see. Um, and are you? Are you also doing any outreach as I feel like I want to jump up and down and, and, and yell at people um, about these phony baloney, quote, pre- crisis pregnancy centers. Those are on every bus stop I pass and half the billboards uh, where they're they're no such item. The crisis pregnancy center would be more accurately termed the crisis. We will help you have your baby. And and that's it. That's your only option here. Um, is there anything you are doing to make people aware of what what these different uh, setups are offering? I, I think there was some legislation where they had to be more forthcoming about that, uh, but I don't know what happened to it or even if I'm misremembering it. No, I mean, I think there are some great organizations who that is kind of their bread and butter. Um, Reproductive Transparency Now is a um, an organization based here in Chicago that focused focuses on protesting and raising awareness about CPCs. Um, So they actually go out in front of the crisis pregnancy centers and protest the same way that, you know, people who are anti-abortion go to clinics. Um, But they they want to let people know, you know, you're entering a crisis pregnancy center. This is not a real clinic. Um, So they're doing really incredible work. And then I think that there are a lot of 
you know, elected officials who are thinking how we can counter or regulate crisis pregnancy centers. And, and one of the great fears we have as an abortion fund who supports people traveling is that somebody could travel all the way here to Illinois with, you know, have spent a lot of money getting here, taken time off of work, secured childcare, done whatever they had to do, and end up at a crisis pregnancy center. Oh my goodness! How could that? How could that even happen? Do you, when you arrange the travel, do you not vet where they're going at all? Well, we do. No, I'm, if somebody is, is operating without the support of ah, them. I yeah. see, I yeah. see. Yeah, that would be important for. I mean, I. I've, I don't know why people don't pick it in front of these places and say this is not a clinic where you have every choice. Um, yeah, if you want to, you can reach out to uh, Reproductive Transparency Now. They're on Instagram, and I think that they're they're regularly looking for volunteers to do that work, for sure. Well, you've anticipated um, one of my next questions, which is that <laughs> I, I, it happened that I was downtown Chicago right after uh, Roe fell, and there was a huge march. And the first thing I noticed was that the, the, the march seemed to be one class, one color, which was very disappointing to me. Um, and, and the second thing I thought was that this is uh, a state where you're pretty much preaching to the choir. So if people want to, A, involve a more diverse group of women in this kind of advocacy, uh, and they're in Illinois where you're access is virtually guaranteed, what should they be doing so they're not carrying a sign and having a a governor go, yeah, 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 I know? (laughs) Well, I think one thing that's really important to make sure that we're inclusive um, when we're talking about who is having abortion. So that means we're, you know, this is an issue that disproportionately affects women, but people of all genders have abortions. Um, and we also emphasize the. Oh, please! I, you know what? As a as a moderate person, I'm going to just get in real trouble here. But I'm I am I'm a little bit squeamish about this. People of all, just can we skip over that part? Because. I fought hard for my right to be talked about as a woman with a uterus. And I know there are people with uteruses who consider themselves different genders, but just scoot over and leave that one for later. Well, I don't, I don't think that's quite fair. You know, trans and we have trans and non-binary people on our team that work really hard on abortion access all day, every day, who've had abortions themselves. And those people deserve to be recognized and uplifted in our movement. And those are people who get pregnant and have abortions. So supporting people fully means, you know, we have to be inclusive of who we're talking about. We can say women and, and we can say that this disproportionately affects women and that that um, this is a gender issue, a gender justice issue. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, we're going to just respectfully agree that you could say women and. I, I draw the line personally at pregnant people. I just get off the bus at that point. <laughs> I just cannot hear that. That's really unfortunate. And I think that really makes, you know, people feel excluded anyways. I'm, you know, I guess it might, but I, I'm, I've got some ways to go on that. So there you are. That's who you're talking to. Consider how that makes people, you know, trans and non-binary people who have had abortions, you know, feel. I work on our helpline, like I said, all the time. And we do hear from people who, um, 
who are affected by by people not wanting to be inclusive, and it's hurtful. It's really simple. Look, I think if you've got a uterus, I think if you've got a uterus and you want an abortion for your uterus, you're entitled to one. It's the nomenclature that's problematic for me. That's it. I can move along from there, and and I appreciate that we can respectfully disagree on some of this topic. I'm, you certainly have a right to support, and you certainly have a right to control of your uterus. And I don't care what you call your body that's around your uterus. I just grew up differently. What can I tell you? I also think that there are people who are just, they walk away at that point. They can't. They're, you know, I, they get stuck. And, and that's, you know. That, and that's unfortunate. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, it, it's really unfortunate that that sticking point bothers people so much. They, we're talking about the reality of what actually happens and the reality of who is accessing abortion. It's so simple. And we shouldn't erase people. I'm not erasing. Okay. The fact that I... I work with people who, ha- who are having abortions every single day, and I'm going to use the language that um, our callers and, and, and our people... Um, well, you should. That's your anyone. that's your job. I'm a talk show host. I don't have to do that. <laughs> I just don't. Well, I hope people. <laughs> I, hope people <laughs> I don't have to. It's not my job. Language. So, um, and I'm, and they may never invite me back as a result of 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 not feeling as comfortable saying pregnant people as I say pregnant women and others. I'm fine with that. But everybody wants. A, a full buy-in to everything. And I, I'm just, I think that we make more progress if we allow for people to be at different points along this path. And that's, I'm just telling you where I am because it would be duplicitous for me to pretend that I'm not. But if people want to get involved quickly with, with stuff that's happening um, and they know that their rights are secured here, what should they be doing? Well, if you would, are interested in supporting people and accessing abortion, you can visit ChicagoAbortionFund.org. We're on Twitter at Shy Abortion Fund. We're on Instagram at Chicago Abortion Fund. And the most important thing you can do is talk about why abortion is important to you. Abortion is not a dirty word. There's nothing wrong with having an abortion. We need to speak openly and um, have these conversations in our community. It's really important to, to, to move beyond um, where we've been stuck since Roe was... Um, since Roe came into existence and left many people behind. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the work that you're doing and the fact that you're so candid about it. And I uh, support your efforts in every way that I can. And I thank you for being willing to talk about them here on WCPT. That's Megan J. Fo. She's the executive director of Chicago Abortion Fund on WCPT. It's the Joan Esposito Show. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. This fall, find everything you love listening to on Audible. From memoirs and true crime to celebrities and sci-fi, Audible is the home of storytelling, audiobooks, podcasts, and originals. Sign up for a free 30-day trial at audible.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Do you think anybody would mind if I said live, local, and moderate just for this hour, maybe? Um, I'm Tory writer in for Joan Esposito. And yes, this is Chicago's Progressive Talk. And Joan should be back, uh, we hope, as soon as tomorrow. Patty Vasquez, less than an hour away. Um, I got some interesting texts about my my aversion to removing the word women from the list of pregnant options. And I think that this texture might might have the solution. Person may equal women. T 
teen child or any any one of whom could have been raped and, and I assume transgender person would be added. I just don't like them removing the word women. I think that takes something away from what's ours. That's what I, you know, that it started out as my darn uterus. That's what I think. So uh, I don't mind including and building and adding. Um, but I don't want women removed from the list of pregnant options. That's what I have to say about it. And I realize that this may put me on the wrong side of some people. Speaking of being on the wrong side of some people, here's a guy who works really hard on behalf of Democrats in rural areas. He has a political consultancy. His name is Isaac Wright. He is a partner in, oh, I really hope I get this right, the Forward you know what? I'm gonna. It's such a long name his company has. We'll let him do it. Isaac Wright, welcome to WCPT. Glad you're here. It's good to be with you. I'm a founding partner at the Rural Voter Institute, and we do research with rural voters and how Democrats and progressives do better communication. Well, that's good because we need to be doing better. Um, it has been many years that many of us on the Democratic spectrum have been saying, why on earth do people vote against their own self-interest? And presumably, uh, that's your bellywick. Is that right? Yeah. So we do a lot of focusing on sort of how we do a better job communicating. And that's a two-way street of communication because a big part of it is listening. Right. And when we talk about sometimes the economic angst in rural America, you know, we as as we being the larger Democratic Party often default to talking about agricultural policy when we know from other studies that nine out of 10 rural and small town Americans don't work in the ag industry. So when Republicans say, gee, you're talking past people, you don't respect rural America enough to get it. When we ignore 90 percent of the population with the issues we talk about. Sometimes that can be a reality. Or we offer solutions like rural broadband, which is critical to building economic infrastructure, but is not a panacea, right? Um, you know, if you saw the joint um, the joint economic committee in the U.S. Senate report on the status of rural America a couple of years ago, the average rural American family earns 75 cents on the dollar compared to their suburban and urban counterparts. Well, to be fair, it's also a little cheaper to live in many parts of rural America or, you know, some things are cheaper, I should say, housing among them. If if you've had a 45 minute to an hour commute for a major grocery store chain or a chain restaurant, it can change things very quickly. Or if you have 30 minutes to three hours to drive to see your doctor. I understand that. I, I I do. And that is one of the reasons why you're here today to talk about why, you know, what can the Democratic, good grief, I'm supposed to talk for a living. What, what can the Democratic Party do to better address the needs of people who don't have medical care right next door or who don't have a good grocery shopping, you know, right down the street or who yeah. can't walk to their library? What, what can we be doing? And and. Are economic issues enough? Because what I keep hearing is it's it's the price of gas and the culture wars. Could you set me yeah. straight on that? So that is such a big question that we have to focus. And really, I think it's a two-part answer, right? One is in the short term. The second is in the long term. Um, and one of the things our research has pointed to, uh, research we've done over the summer, which we've done uh, in-depth research with rural Midwestern battleground states, small town and rural voters, uh, about everything from the Dobbs decision post Roe versus Wade, 
um, to the war in Ukraine, the economy and inflation, uh, the events of January 6th and the ensuing uh, congressional investigations, uh, the search at Mar-a-Lago, et cetera. And one of the things we found is a, a constant uh, over the course of this year has been the economic concerns with inflation, with prices, and that is top of mind for every voter. And no matter who we've talked to about whatever issue, that always trumps as the largest issue, no pun intended. Uh, and that's the number one thing we need to address that. Price. Bill Clinton ran on that. It's the economy, stupid. Right. But here's here's a thing that I don't understand, and maybe you can set me straight. And I am not, by birth, a city city girl. I, w- I, I was raised in Manhattan, Kansas, when it was a lot smaller than it even is now, and it's still no major metropolis. Um, I don't understand this idea that somehow America should be immune from the same world forces that are making these things issues all over the globe. And furthermore, uh, people seem to feel that they don't. Let me backtrack. I think there is a a big misperception um, in rural areas that they are independent of the government and the government doesn't do anything for them and they don't need the government. And personally, I think they're just lying to themselves. Is there any way to explain to somebody your gas is expensive and it'd be expensive if you'd been in Sweden, but at least you'd have a social safety net and health care? Is there any way that people can address this education effort that the Republicans did for years and years and years, uh, probably best done by Reagan, that that whole joke about I'm from the government and I'm here to help? Ha ha ha. Is there any way to explain to people that actually the government is helping them and and they should be supporting more government of the right sort and and well run. How does one make that point? Yeah, so that's really so you hit a couple of points there I think are worth. uh, I want to make sure I follow up and address all of them. Uh, One was the question about are we separate, are rural and small town voters, um, are we as a country separate from influences for the global economy, global fuel prices? And when we researched inflation uh, and specifically gas prices, that was actually the only argument we found that moved voters in our direction. However, it had to be executed well. Um, When we talked about the fact that rising gas prices were, uh, you know, a a problem of the corporate profits of the gas industry um, or OPEC, uh, those arguments fell over like a lead balloon. When we talked about was it part of uh, sort of the sacrifice um, for the war effort uh, and our support of Ukraine's struggle for its defense against Russia's encroachment, uh, again, fell flat. However, what we found was we moved nearly every voter when we made the comparison to World War II. And at the uh, height of World War II, there were shortages in America, uh, shortages of, of gas and fuel, inflation. And Americans knew when they paid at the pump, they were making a sacrifice because freedom didn't end at our shores. And we have to stop a madman who would invade sovereign nations. And today, that is what we're doing against Putin. And as a result, we are facing inflation, supply chain disruptions, and higher gas prices. That specific argument and that way to present it move voters nearly universally in our direction. So why isn't that argument working better in the debates and the conversations and the interviews that I'm seeing now? Who's getting in the way of properly making that argument? Is it all Fox News or something else? 
Well, I, I, if you have seen that argument made, I, I would love to get a copy of it because I have not seen that specific World War II comparison. Well, I think President Biden laid it out there pretty clearly that, that we were going to have to pull up our socks and endure some hardship in the same way that we had done when we fought for our independence in Europe. Did he not? Or has it just been too long? I, I think you have to draw that distinction a little more clearly. Um, we actually laid out uh, kind of what sort of the 30-second summary of that would look like, and I think we have to be very direct about it. Um, it, 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 it it's it, it's got to be executed very well to make that case, um, and I think when we can, I think it will move voters. As we saw in our panel, it was the only argument that moved voters. And really, if we can just sort of mute some of the animosity towards that, because right now, and this goes back to your question about, you know, sort of that feeling uh, in rural and small towns uh, that we are are sort of separate from the rest of the country uh, in terms of making our own decisions. Um, That idea that we have to build that economic freedom from the gas prices and the inflation. And in fact, one of the things we've seen over three years of research, a consistently a strong held value in rural communities has been this idea of sort of self-determination for their own community, not just individually, but that their rural community needed to be able to make its own choices. Okay, so I want to pause you on that because that kind of majority rule thinking, I think, can also be a little bit dangerous. And I want to talk a little bit more about that with you. And if you'll just hang around, we will do that in a moment. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan on WCPT. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. This is the week that Steve Bannon perp walked. Do you have a round of applause? Uh, I do. I do. I'll call them up. It'll take. That's not it. No, that's the sound of people seeing the spot on his forehead when he walks into the chair. That's not it either. That's the wrong one. Uh, that's the owning the libs meeting call. <laughs> he looked great. Yeah, yeah, he did, didn't he? He was wearing makeup. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Facts sure do matter. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Turi with you, writer like the truck. Uh, yes, you can find me online. And yes, I have a podcast. And it is not political. So so you can catch up with me that way. But I'm keeping Joan's chair warm uh, because she's a little under the weather. With me, as he has been for the last several minutes, is uh, a gentleman who is part of the Forward Strategic Strategy Group. His name is Isaac Wright. He's doing outreach for rural voters who have historically not voted Democratic. And uh, we were just talking about uh, people in smaller towns and rural areas feeling like they, they want to make their own decisions independently. Am I characterizing that accurately? Yeah, there's this idea of a very strong community-based self-determination, So, which is why I think we have to do a better job of engaging in a two-way conversation. Do right. people do Too often we talk at voters instead of talking with them? Where, where, where did it, this idea come from that 
is this because we don't teach sociology and uh, civics anymore that we uh, don't seem to grasp the idea that it's not just about the majority getting what it wants, but that the beauty of America is that the minority is protected from the majority? Is that that's the part where I have difficulty that and this idea that we, we function independently unless something goes wrong and then we want the federal government. So the Rural Voter Institute has been uh, engaged in research for about three years. But I will say, because I want to credit somebody a lot smarter than I am, who is a rural social psychologist who has worked in this space, um, you know, for, for decades. Uh, and I had a conversation when I was when the Rural Voter Institute was starting out. And he pointed out to me this uh, sense of uh, disconnection from the rest of the country that goes back decades. Um, and it can be traced through multiple fronts, um, through social and public policy issues, that there is a feeling of often isolation from what's going on in the rest of the country, in part because the economy uh, can become so disconnected from that in the rest of the country. And uh, I, I, I want to credit... Weirdly, uh, I mean, I... Just a second here. Just a second, just a second. This idea that... that, that People are disconnected from the world economy is bunkum. Um, it's just bunkum. If you it, <laughs> and that, I think maybe part of the the problem. Did I miss something here? Is there? Do people not read like where their clothes were made? Do people not understand where the the one of the reasons why the energy crisis is happening is that the, their energy very often comes from somewhere else, or if they go solar, that those batteries are made somewhere somewhere else, or that their American car company is building their cars in Mexico. Do they? How is it possible in this day and age that you can put your fingers in your ears and hum and say, "I'm not connected to the rest of the world here in my little town"? So that's exactly our problem, right? That's the kind of conversation we the larger Democratic Party and progressive movement often has in rural America, right? Uh, do you have your fingers in your ear? Why don't you get it? And when we talk down to voters like that is exactly when we we build a wall that we can't later overcome. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I would hope, I would hope that if I were talking to those voters, I wouldn't do it just like this. I mean, I would... As a as a former Kansan, I would be happy to say, okay, let's talk about independence versus interdependence. Let's realistically look at the ways where your community is self-sufficient and there are great assets and, and there are great advantages in having a strongly rooted sense of independence. And let's work at looking at the ways realistically that that's not the case anymore. But instead, the, we've got the Trump Republicans go, trying to fight for an America that just flat does not exist and was fraught with problems when it did. And again, it can be the difference of talking with versus talking at. So how do you do this? And by the way, three weeks before an election, how how are you making this point about energy when that seems to be the thing that's making everybody, the independents, swing right? What is it too late? So one of the first points we have to make is we need to have a common ground understanding of why people, for example, feel that disconnection. Again, 75 cents on the dollar compared to the rest of the country for similar work. The upside down population pyramid in rural America that is seeing the 
many of the best and brightest leave for educational and economic opportunities in other parts of the country. It creates a situation where you have a larger than there should be older population at the top of the pyramid compared to younger folks to take care of them, whether that is family, extended family, or healthcare professionals. Uh, and it creates that disconnect of what's going on in the rest of the country. For example, at the end of the Great Recession, the last part of the country to return to pre-Great Recession employment levels years later was rural America. And there are parts of rural America that still have not recovered from the Great Recession. That's part of the reason for that disconnect. That's why you find higher than any other part of the country uh, concerns and angst over whether or not people can ever earn enough to live the kind of life they want to lead or to retire someday in rural America. So, and so let, let me let me is acknowledging is acknowledging people's concerns and fears going into the conversation to have. By the way, I'm pleased to see that you have access to emergency medicine near you. Um, at least that's what it sounded like. And I hope it's not you. So um, are you there? Hello? Uh Oh, I am. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I, think, I think there must be a commotion next door. Uh, okay. Well, it's good that you can get an ambulance to your house That's or your next door neighbor's house. So, he- yeah. pardon? Oh, office, yeah. Yes. So, or your office. So, here, everybody's working in their houses now. I just, now my default is you must be working from your home office. Is that, that that's the last two years. So, you are were speaking about um, the services that people can't access and the and the things they don't have in rural America that they used to have, and yet it's the most rural states, states like Mississippi, for example, that keep voting for policies that suck these services right out of their communities. I'm thinking of medical care here. They're they're voting for policies where insurance companies can stick it to them, and they're you know don't have to be, um, and and they're big conglomerate hospitals that can assess them all kinds of tests that they can't afford, and their states are refusing to participate in Obamacare, which would help them. How how can one explain? This circles back to my initial. If people don't get it by now, how how can they get it? So this this is where we have to acknowledge the fact that there has been a right wing manipulation of the conversation and misinformation campaign that's going on for decades, and largely we have not been present to fully engage and push back on that. And to fix that, we can't just come in three months, six months before a campaign and uh, and and hope for the best. We need to invest in, in democratic infrastructure, in campaign infrastructure, 365 days a year in rural and small town America to really see a persuasion different. Um, because what we've, one of the things we found in, in our research is, for the most part, the issue to overcome is not our values. It's how we communicate them, right? Um, Democrats are for fixing the economic problems, the economic woes of those who have less educational opportunity, less economic opportunity. And those are two major issues that need to be addressed, right? It's not a values discrepancy. It is a how we communicate it discrepancy. I I have so much difficulty with... With, with how you communicate, for example, I'm using Mississippi again, in a state where, you know, they 
They have huge numbers of people watching Fox News. They're voting against their own self-interest. They've got uh, governors who are flat refusing to allow uh, the government to be useful in their state. And I, I, I applaud you for not giving up, if nothing else, because I, I feel so sad about it. I don't even have a way to describe it to you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's math, right? If we give up, you know, we sacrifice the Electoral College for the White House and the U.S. Senate because the, just the way our system of government was created, um, there is an outside emphasis given to the power of rural states um, because of the equal number of U.S. senators, which then impacts the Electoral College. Well, if the rural states voted in their own self-interest, this would not be a problem. And yet... You know, you're right in the thick of it. You, you, your task, from what you're telling me, the Sisyphusian task is to get people to push that boulder up the hill and and see that the top of the hill from there, they can really see that voting Democratic serves their families, their communities, their work life, their health life, and um, just with the few seconds that we have remaining, what can those of us in in more uh, uh, urban settings do to be supportive of that effort? I'd say the first thing is listen, two-way conversation. Uh, we should not downplay people's concerns or anxieties. We should listen and then engage in a conversation about how we want to impact the world to make it a better place, how we want to impact the country to make it a place, and how we want to impact their local community to help. Working together, not separately um, but we need, you know, to, to, to be a little bit reductive, we need to think more in terms of we, us, and our, and less of me, I, and you. Well, I wish you every success because I, you know, in, in the macro, I'm right with you. In the micro, I have no idea how to converse with people when they're telling me that elections were stolen and, you know, we're being... I, I just don't even, you know the list. I don't even have to tell you. But if you figure out a magic formula that means that I sit in a room and listen to somebody saying these things, and then from there I can somehow convince that person that there's more to the story, um, I hope I fill in again and I can have you back to tell me what it is. Thank you so much, Isaac Wright. I really appreciate it. Um, good to have you with us on WCPT. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, the fact of the matter is that Joan's out sick today. But we hope that she'll be back tomorrow. And I'm Turi Ryder. That's spelled T-U-R-I, Ryder, like the truck. And you can find me here for the next half hour. And then Patty Vasquez will be in. Um, if you want to continue the conversation, you can always follow me on Twitter and all those other socials, except TikTok. I refuse. I just refuse. I'm not dancing with my cat, and you can't make me. Um I did want to to open up the phone lines for you to participate uh, in these next several minutes that we have, because so much has come across the airwaves today. Uh, Beautiful fall day and just a few days away from the uh, drop dead election day, early voting open. I will be going to the polls once I print up my list of judges. How about you? How are you voting this year? I'd be curious to know and why. Um. And do you feel like uh, there's any reason why you should vote one particular way or another? 
I will confess to you that one of the reasons I'm voting so early is that I wish to be removed from the list of, Hello, Mrs. Ryder. I'm calling to see if you have been to the polls yet. Are you planning to? Yeah, I'd like that to stop. So I figure if I get in there and and uh, do my civic duty, maybe maybe that'll shut them down a little earlier. And it will free them up to actually uh, bother someone who may or may not be going to the polls in a timely manner. Also, what I'd really like to ask you is if if you are... As the election approaches, in a series of conversations or one conversation with someone whose vote is being decided differently than yours, except that there's still like space for conversation. I don't mean the people who are actively sending money to the other party and, you know, go apoplectic if you um, say anything different than what they believe. I mean the people who are, as our, our last guest um, indicated open to being listened to and having conversation. And what's that conversation like for you and for them? Uh, phone number here seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. Again, that's seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight. You can also text us at that number. Uh, please try and give me a little context if you can. Um, this one came in. Why didn't anyone listen to President Carter? I have no idea what that is actually. Referring to concerning energy, concerning Iraq, concerning Iran, concern. He had many things that we should have listened to him about. I just don't know which ones we should have. And I, I don't know. You'd have to give me more than that. Let's go to Mark in Libertyville. Mark, welcome to WCPT. You have identified yourself, identified yourself as a conservative. Yes. You can still call me. I will still talk to you, by the way. I love I love my conservative friends deeply. Well, uh, I, I do try to be open-minded, but I, I, I have to be honest with you that uh, the left way of thinking just doesn't, it's like trying to pound a square peg in a round hole. And, and let me just, can I set a couple examples? Well, yes, because I'd like to know, I'm glad, because the left's way of thinking is a tapestry of thinking. As you just, if you were listening an hour ago, you heard me say to somebody, you know, I, I object to the nomenclature, and she was not pleased. So we don't all think the same, nor do all conservatives. So kindly give me examples. Okay, I'll try to ramble them off. Um, the the I live in Illinois, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Chicago has not had, there's not been a Republican representative as far as mayor in Chicago, I think back to 1920. Okay? Mm-hmm. Chicago is virtually the worst in every category that you want to be first, and, and first in almost everything you want to be last. Okay? Well, hold up. Hold, hold up. I can give you a data point that uh, belies that statement, and I can give it to you from experience. A couple of them. Ready? Are you ready? What have we lost him? Yeah. Okay. So. Hello. Yeah, I'm right here. I don't know what happened. Somehow you got okay. temporarily put on hold. I, I have two data points. Hold up. Hold up. To, to your to your data point, I want to respond. Um, Chicago has, I think, five of the very best public high schools in the entire state of Illinois. That's for one. Okay, and and that's hard data, testing scores, college admissions, variety of programs. Anyone you want to look at it, Chicago has, I believe, five 
of the best public high schools in the entire state of Illinois, and they are highly rated nationwide. So that's one. Another, medical care. Chicago has some of the most highly rated medical research institutions in the entire country. And a third point, while I'm throwing it in, some of the most highly regarded universities, not just in the country, but in the world, are in Chicago. So those are three places where when you say Chicago is the worst, the worst, the worst, you are mistaken. Okay. Um, point taken. You, 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 again, you cannot say every, every, everything in Chicago is bad, but it certainly is bad enough that companies are leaving it, it, and people are leaving at a furious rate. So my next point is is that, that um, immigration, okay, um, we all want our country to be safe. And I think one of the most frustrating things for me is when, when all this chaos is going on at the border, nobody seems to care. But I think the two incidents or the three that people can say what they want. But when you start, when you start um, bringing these people up to Martha's Vineyard or Chicago or D.C. or New York, when now these people have to walk the walk, you know, we're an open, you know, we're open-minded, we're, a, we're a, a sanctuary city. These governors or, or these mayors can't get them out of their cities fast enough. Well, okay, hold, hold up a second. Let's talk about that because... I actually, and I also want to circle back, you talked about people leaving and companies leaving, and I think a lot of that is taxes, and I think Chicago is like a disaster for that right now. So you and I, point of agreement there, Mark. Note that, okay? We, we agree on something. I like it when we agree. Okay, I'm willing. And the second, to, to your next set of points about uh, borders and who these people. So these people is a loaded term, and it's a big term, and it encompasses a lot Lots of people. So by that, do you mean people who are coming through undocumented, people who are part of emergency measures like from Ukraine and from in the past Haiti or who who are these people to you? Well, people that are just coming into our country, all of the above. Okay, all of them. Including the ones who are seeking refuge from wars and 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 and, uh, natural disasters. So where where um, where does this end? Okay, you can we can go to Africa. We there's I think out of a population of a billion four hundred million people, I'm not sure of the exact, but let's say just seven hundred million of Chinese people are living a, a quality of life. Well, they're not in Africa. Seven hundred million. <laughs> I, they're not in Africa. I don't. I'm not quite. I think you're kind of. I'm not. I'm not sure where you're going with this. There's. there's there's people in Africa, millions that are living just horrendous lives. Yes. There's hundreds, there's hundreds of millions in in in, um, in China that are living horrendous lives. Yes. Why don't we open? Why don't we just let them all in? Okay. So here's another place we agree. Oh, Mark, we agree. Ready? I I don't. You on our side before this phone call? No, you won't. But hold on a second. <laughs> I but you but you see here we're having a good conversation about it. So this is exactly what I live for. If I just had a bunch of people calling me up, going, oh, I agree, I agree, I would fall asleep before the three hours were over. So, Mark, I want to say this to you. I do not believe, and I've actually talked to younger people like, nation borders are arbitrary, open them all up. And that is a crock, in my opinion. That is not a workable state of affairs. Uh, you can't waltz into 
almost any other country and just say, hey, you know, I, I feel like I want to be Norwegian. It just doesn't happen like that. However, the system, the last time we got serious immigration reform was Ronald Reagan and didn't go so, so well because it, it sort of fell apart in the aftermath. We need to spend a little money and not on building a wall. We need to spend money on uh, courts so that people who are legitimately seeking refuge have a process that works in a timely and respectful fashion. We need to have police who are or immigration and naturalization system that that works in a respectful fashion and doesn't divide families and imprison children. We need to have a structure whereby uh, we disincentivize people just racing here to our border. And some of that is spending money propping up governments that are in the infancies of serving the populations where they are. And I don't mean having corrupt corporations doing it, as has often happened in places like Haiti. I mean actually working with civil society and good government in other countries so that people are not fearing for their lives and are willing to risk anything just to get here on the off chance that they might be able to stay. So this system is broken, but it is certainly not the fault of the people who are coming here to our borders. They're just scared and desperate. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. So there we go. Another point of now, now those things I've just suggested that you and I both agree on, they cost money costs money to have immigration judges. So why, um, why would you be opposed to a wall? It just, I mean, it really does not work. It just, it just does not work. It's, it's ridiculously expensive. And I mean, I, it, it's not a realistic solution. It's, it doesn't work. How's that for an answer? The thing is, though, that, that, uh, well, you know, um, and even and wait, even if we did build, even if we could build some sort of barrier, we would still have to spend more money on immigration points so that people who have a legitimate reason to be arriving here can be processed in a timely fashion and not forced to live in subhuman, almost worse than you'd keep a farm animal uh, conditions while they wait till there's someone who can adjudicate their case. So. Again, all of this stuff, however we do it, it takes money. And the minute you come to the American taxpayer and say, the system is broken, we need to fix it, it costs money, people go, excuse me, did you say cost money? Oh, no, sorry. And and that is where we need to get our heads together and figure out, how are we going to spend money? Can we spend it on systems that work? Can we spend money on um, spending uh, overseas and overland in places where we can actually create systems for people that incentivize them to stay where they are? So we just found a lot of stuff to agree about, Mark, except for wall. I'm not building you a wall. I'm sorry. We'll have to disagree about that one. Okay. As far as paying for all this, though, but 
the country's $31 trillion in debt. Well, our, our debt has come down. Our debt has come down. Thank you, President Biden. And uh, we can keep it coming down if, for example, we can bring in the, the needed and the wanted and the desired workers who are immigrants that business owners are desperately seeking to employ. But right now, there's a shortage of those people, and there's a jam up in the process. And if you owned a restaurant, you'd have a heck of a time finding someone to work in your restaurant right now. And if you did, you'd have to pay more than you used to. So there's a, a use for these people. And I don't know when your family came over, but when my family came over, they worked hard, menial jobs, and there was good public education available. And so their children, my parents, did much better. And we need to start rebuilding the systems that help people move through the process, providing entry-level workers for people who are suitable for that, and providing education so people can move up and do better as they remain generation to generation. And I think we agreed on more we just than we disagreed. On so thanks for calling. Uh, I don't have a name for this person who is calling. Do I have a name for this? I'm just ask. I can ask, Lady B. You don't have to do all this hard work. Um, but I tell you what, before that happens, I think I think we need to do some other stuff, and then I'll get right back to your calls. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder, just sitting in for Joan. She's a little under the weather. She'll be back soon. Phone number 773-763-9278. And Patty Vasquez is like 15 minutes away. You're listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. Welcome back. We are Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder, here for just a few more minutes, then Patty Vasquez comes in. And we were talking about your thoughts about the election and how it would be decided. And we had a gentleman who called and talked about immigrants, people leaving Chicago. So here's Andrea, who wants to address that. Andrea, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hi, Tori. How you doing? Am I pronouncing Is it Andrea or Andrea? Andre. Andre. Andre, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. It says Andrea here, so we're just going to fix that right now. Hi, Andre. Hi, how you doing? I'm well. What's up? Uh, I just wanted to call in uh, regards to the gentleman that was talking about people leaving Illinois. Um, I know he was talking about, um, I don't know if he was talking about Chicago in general, just Illinois in general. Um, But I did want to kind of bring up this statistic that kind of thwarts his his talking point is just last year in 2021, uh, we had 198,000 uh, business startups in Illinois, which was an increase. From- I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. 180,000 what in Illinois? I didn't hear that. 100, 198,000 business startups created in Illinois. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, in 2020, it was 170,000 uh, business startups in Illinois. So your point is that, that businesses are increasing. We do, though, have a population decrease. Uh, no, that's actually, if you look at the census, uh, that's actually untrue. I would, uh, uh, the Illinois census undercounted our numbers uh, by, I, I don't have the statistics right here, but you can do the the research on that, but there are I'm looking at I'm looking at one number, and the number that I'm looking at is the downsizing of Chicago and Illinois. It's the Red Line Project, and it shows that Chicago was the only major city in the country to lose residents 
in 2016, more than 66,000 people left Cook County. Uh, and it goes on. But I, you could quibble about the figures. Um, I can tell you as a Chicago resident that I'm definitely noticing a shift in the population. Um, there are neighborhoods where there is a real population loss, and there are neighborhoods on the north side, like mine, which seem to be growing speedily. So I think it'll be interesting to see what the next census shows us as we dig down further and further into it. Yeah, it depends on if you're just talking about Chicago. I can't I can't tell you whether that population has decreased or increased. I'm talking about Illinois in general overall. Um, if the 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 undercounting was almost two percent, um, you know, by uh, actually uh, you can look at NBC New Chicago. Their May twentieth um, two thousand twenty two article. Talked about how the one I undercounted in the 2020 census. Okay, so so let's say that's true. What? Yeah. How do you interpret for the purposes of this conversation? Businesses are are more businesses are starting up. However, a lot of really big corporations are are moving. So, how do you discuss that? What does that say to you? Well, it might it might it might challenge the fact that maybe. Corporations, are, the larger corporations are moving because maybe they have to pay more taxes in Illinois, which is not a, necessarily a bad thing for larger corporations to actually have to pay their fair share um, and uh, burden the tax uh, and, and take on the tax burden as much as smaller businesses have. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I watched Boeing. It was kind of like one of those old songs. There it comes. There it goes. Here came, came Boeing. And I thought, well, that's an odd move for them to make. And, I, you know, we all remember their pretty building on the shores of the river there. And how long were they in town? What, 10 years maybe before they announced they were going to vamoose for better conditions elsewhere? Um, and you can say that that's the tax structure. You could also say that Boeing itself is in rough shape. I think... I guess what I'm trying to say to you is um, you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But for sure, we need to explain to people when you pay more taxes, what do you get for your money? If I think the better argument is to talk about states where there's a lower uh, tax base and to see how that's adversely affecting the educational system in those states, the libraries in those states, healthcare in those states, roads in those states, public support services in those states. I think if we make the argument that way, um, then people may see uh, what what they pay for and what they get from it. Yeah, well, you get you, with, with taxes come services. I've I've biked all over the <clears throat> United States in a lot of rural rural places, and um, there's places where the sidewalks you cannot use the sidewalk; they are just uh, unusable. The the roads are, are horrible. The fire comes out just to um, put out the fire after after your house is burned down. The 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 the, the um, the ambulances come out just to pronounce you dead. I mean, you get services that your taxes provide you with things that you, your your um, your the way of that you live. You're, you're going to be. I, th- I think you've said it very well, and you're going to be our last caller on the subject today because I think you're right. People need to understand that if they don't pay, they don't get, and then the system has to be set up so that. 
when we pay in, it's it's fair for everybody, including people who may need a little more right now from people who need a little less right now, because it can change really fast. Today, you feel like you're on top of the world. You don't need much from your government. Just wait. You have the special needs kid or you and you need services from your school or Really, I could list things, but we've come to the end of the show for today, and perhaps we will meet again. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. Thanks for making me comfortable. Thanks, Lady B. Thanks, Matt Cummings, for inviting me. Get well soon, Joan.